Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm your host and coach, Tyler Johnson. Thank you for tuning in. If you are a return listener, I'd be grateful for your rating or review. And if you dig this episode, give us a like or share. And now, whether you've tuned in to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you are in the right place. My guest this episode is a keynote speaker, leadership development coach, as well as a former football coach himself at SMU, UCLA, and with the Miami Dolphins. He is the host of the High Level Podcast and author of the book, Finding Intangibles. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Mr. Evan Burke. Evan, how are you today? Tyler, I'm doing great today, man, and I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah, excited to have you on here. And I got a, you know, some football coaching background, football guy. So it's always, always good to have some gridiron folk on here to chat a bit and talk. We're going to talk about your book. But uh, what originally, I guess, interests me is, you know, what got you into coaching originally, into the coaching path before more of what you do now? Well, in high school, I competed in football and in wrestling and I wasn't good enough to get recruited to college. And I went to the University of Colorado. And uh, I would say probably after a year of just being a student there going to school, I just kind of had an itch to still be involved in a team. Uh, you know, you go to college and if you're used to competing and you kind of have this lack of competition, uh, this lack of camaraderie, so to speak, that you get or that you're used to your whole career, I was kind of missing that. And I wanted to, to reconnect in some way to sports. And so the, the natural progression of my coaching career really started with going to the youth, um, you know, sports organization down the street from the University of Colorado. And I started, I think it was my sophomore year, I started working cool. uh, with them and just coaching various fourth grade football, or excuse me, fourth grade basketball teams, fifth grade soccer teams, baseball teams. Um, and I think about a year later, I kind of stumbled upon my first football team, which was a fourth grade tackle football team at the Boulder Rec Center. Um, right. So uh, that was kind of the early stages of my coaching career. But really, it was just a desire to kind of reconnect with sports, sure. um, be around a, a team again, uh, you know, have the ability to compete at something that I was really used to my whole career. And, and as I said, I kind of have a little bit of an unconventional path. I didn't play college sports. And so to me at the time as a 19 year old, I just felt the first step was just reconnecting with youth sports at that time. The, looking back quick, do you have kids now? I do not. not. So look, looking back, uh, brave of you. I think I had friends that jumped into coaching as, as the college age coaching little league. Um, what was the lesson, maybe a key lesson you learned as a, you know, college age kid jumping into coaching and coaching fourth graders? So I think the first thing that comes to mind is, is obviously the true love of the game. Mm -hmm. um, but I think probably the lesson from being a college, you know, we've all been in college and yeah. some of us probably, you know, had uh, maybe weren't as focused during that time. And I think probably the thing that I took away from it was just the sacrifice and the work ethic that it, that it takes to, to be successful in something outside of the normal constraints of school. Right. I think like when you go to college and maybe, you know, to some extent in high school, you have a lot of constraints on you. Um, you you're told when to work out, you're told when yeah. to show up to practice, 
college is a little different. You don't quite have those uh, constraints that you're working within. And so I think it was, I, I didn't really view it at the time as a sacrifice, but you are sacrificing a little bit, right? Like you, yeah. you're coaching on a Saturday morning, friends are maybe getting up and driving to the mountains to go ski for the weekend. And, and you can't partake in that. But a, again, at the time I was really didn't see it as much of a sacrifice. I just knew that this is what I wanted to be involved in, um, in fourth grade football and I was going to be there every practice and every game day. So, you know, again, not a monstrous commitment that I ended up making as I progressed into the college and the pro ranks as a coach. Sure. Uh, but I just think like as a 20 year old and yeah. kind of like maybe sacrificing a night out on a Friday night or sacrificing a ski trip, uh, just kind of like those early lessons of showing up every day and, and being there for your team. Yeah. Love it. Um, okay. Was there a coach kind of that, as a kid or, or maybe in your coaching path that stuck out and kind of inspired you maybe more so than others in your journey? Well, one that comes to mind is a gentleman by the name of Barry Faulkner. And he was a longtime high school and college coach in the state of Texas. Uh, we had mutual family friends and somebody in my family had connected me to him. And at the time he was selling field turf. Uh, so back in the early 2000s, there were still a lot of grass fields oh, yeah. and uh, they were kind of like in this uh, movement towards the, the, the field turf that you see on the majority of fields. Now he was selling field turf, but he had kind of become my mentor for lack of a better term. Uh, during this time and was just kind of like helping me as I progressed. Uh, you know, I was a fourth grade coach and then I was a high school coach in Boulder before I started on my college and, and pro coaching path. And he was really just there as somebody that I could turn to and, and ask questions and just get general okay. guidance. Um, I don't have a typical path of a football coach. I'm not a former college player. I'm not a former pro player. And I don't have a dad or any family members that are pro coaches or, or NFL executives that can kind of just like sure. slot me in at 22 years old into a, you know, a high level college or pro organization. So I didn't know anything about this business. I didn't know what it was like to be a sure. college or pro coach. And, and he was somebody that I could really turn to early on in my journey, even though he was out of coaching, he could kind of direct me and say, Hey, this is maybe a program you should look into. You should reach out to this coach. You should try and meet this person. Um, I think from where you are, the next step is, is getting into a college program. And, and honestly, just somebody that could kind of help direct me early on in my career when I really had no idea what was happening or where sure. I was headed. Well, I know one of the things I appreciate about you is uh, the, the non-traditional path. I think it's also uh, provides some non-traditional value when you get there as well. So um, your book, Finding Intangibles, and, uh, football, the quarterback position, quarterbacks, every position really on great teams, it always seems to come up, you know, finding intangibles, you know, what are these, what are these intangibles? What are they and, and how do you define them, Evan? So a, a question that I definitely wanted to tackle with this book. And I think as I started to progress through my coaching career, I think that the common thinking is that the most talented team always wins. Uh, and I think as I went through my career, I started to realize that the teams that win and the performers that are truly great and elite are not always the most talented. They mm -hmm. always have 
the most character. Mm -hmm. And I think when we say character, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're just the nicest and most polite character as kind of, uh, you know, in football terms, the football character, their work ethic, uh, what type of passion they have for the sport, what type of team player they are. So uh, I saw a lot of commonalities in what the best coaches that I was around and that I was studying would talk about and would look for in their players and in their teams. And I tried to break it down in the most simplistic way I could, which was I really bucketed three different areas of intangibles. So finding mindset, finding heart, and finding team players. And so really like these three areas, um, mindset really around growth mindset, you know, how do they view failures? Uh, How do they respond to successes? What type of work ethic do they have? How do they view um, what actually leads to success um, really as one bucket? Uh, The second bucket finding heart is really around somebody's passion, their competitiveness, like what's truly inside them that drives them to want to be great. And I think the third piece, especially when we're talking about team players and team sports, is this aspect of putting the team success before an individual's success. And and anybody that's played on a team can recognize that you look back and and oftentimes our greatest moments, our, our greatest accomplishments aren't necessarily those individual accolades, but it's more oftentimes like the team coming together to accomplish something great. So those were really the three pieces that I kind of honed in on. I I could have probably written up about 30 individual traits, but I wanted, and I really felt also that bucketing these three and these three areas really kind of encompassed everything that I was hearing and seeing from the best teams around. No, I love it. Um, What are maybe... flipped intangibles a little bit when you think about maybe talent and some of the tangibles what are some of the ones we maybe you know overvalue overemphasize in sport sometimes from from your experiences so you mean for tangibles or intangibles tangibles yeah so you know it, we're, we're sitting here, it's the very beginning of May, and they just had the, the NFL draft for yeah. 2022. And, uh, you know, I think one thing that teams typically look at is they tend to ignore the, um, or they tend to prioritize the unimportance. And I talk in my book about ignoring the unimportance. And so okay. uh, with the first pick in the draft this year, he was on a very good team. He had some pretty good production. He's obviously, you know, one of the top players coming out of college. But the thing that really kind of uh, vaulted him to the top of the draft was his size, his measurables, his wingspan, all of these pieces. Yes, they can definitely help in being a productive pro player, uh, but he wasn't exactly a very productive college player. And oftentimes we look at these measurables, so to speak, and we kind of put them on this pedestal and think, well, if this person was 6'5", of course we would offer them a scholarship. Of course we would take them with a draft pick. But they're 6'3 and 5'8". I mean, come on, what can we really do here? And I saw these same conversations happen time and time again 
where I would spend, you know, two days with a, a recruit and his family and just be blown away by how great they were and, and how they had all of these character traits that I had mentioned a moment ago. But then we would get into a room and kind of discuss, okay, are we going to offer this kid a scholarship? And we would start talking about narrow shoulders or like his butt's kind of small or like, <laughs> right. you know, all of these things yeah. that I can remember. I was young. I was 22, 23. Sure. I had no idea what was happening, but I can just remember at the time sitting there and being like, I, I don't think we're talking about the right things. I don't think narrow shoulders uh, are, are something that we should be talking about. Now, you do need to have talent. You need, do need to be a certain size or have certain skills to compete in any competitive industry. I'm not saying that, sure. uh, but I, I think we tend to over-prioritize or emphasize these pieces that, yes, it, they're important to some extent, but they don't actually result in the success of, of people in a certain competitive industry. And, and that's really what I wanted to try and write about in my book was kind of deprioritizing the measurables and the talent and actually reverse engineer, okay, what makes these people great? And, yeah. and, and you see so often that it's, it's rarely because somebody is 6'5 versus 6'3". It usually has to do with the type of work ethic and the way that they respond to adversity and, and all these other things. No doubt. I think it, part of my experience uh, working with the college team was, you know, the scouts came through, right? I, I think it's an interesting dynamic on draft day. They put up these measurables, they put up the highlights, they, they put up those things, but the scouts spend disproportionately, I think, more time talking about the person, especially if they're going to really, if they're a top option for them. And so it's, it's interesting is how quickly they can measure you, but how much time they spend actually investigating you. Um, yes. What time of type of person talking to your coaches. And then um, I think one thing I always, kids, I was like, no, they usually ask about grades pretty quickly. It's just, <laughs> you know, something. So um, love the discussion. I can't wait to, to dive into your book. Uh, you have a podcast as well, the high level podcast. Um, I'm guessing it's on most platforms. I know you can find it. Um, who are some guests that, that you've had that uh, have really maybe taught you something or, or blew your hair back a bit that got you excited? Yeah. Thank you for, for bringing that up. I, I, these were the conversations I was having with coaching colleagues and friends uh, my whole career. And I always thought were, were interesting to me because exactly like you said, I was learning something from them and their experiences. And that's where a lot of these conversations come from. Uh, so I'm trying to learn something pretty much in every conversation. There's a reason I'm reaching out to somebody and wanting to get them on the show. Uh, I would say two that really stand out to me. Um, number one would be uh, Michael Lombardi, who is a former NFL GM. He has his own podcast and, um, you know, has won championships in the NFL and worked yeah. with the very best of the NFL. Uh, so a couple of things that I wanted to kind of talk to him about were the, the evolution of Bill Belichick as somebody who worked with him early on in his career and then who later yeah. worked with him in New England and um, really – really interesting how he talked about him being very much the same person. Um, and, you know, there's always certain situations, whether it's us in a job with a certain company or, you know, speaking about teams, you're, you're with a team and maybe they don't have a franchise quarterback, or maybe the owner is meddling with every decision that's being made. There's always 
pieces of the situation that determine success. But he was just kind of saying like, look, Bill Belichick made some mistakes in Cleveland, but he's the same person. Um, and I think another thing he mentioned was his ability to admit mistakes. Mm-hmm. We look at Bill Belichick and he probably is, uh, at least in the modern NFL, the best coach of, of the history of the NFL. And uh, just saying that like, he's not perfect and he's willing to stand in front of the team and accept his failures and mistakes uh, and correct them. Uh, and I think that creates this accountability that you see in, in their organization and, and part of the reason for their success. And then I, I think another guest is Taylor Jenkins, who's the head coach for the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, that right now, as we sit here uh, talking today, they're tied, I think, 1-1 with the Golden State Warriors in the, in the Western Conference semis. So that was a really great conversation, too, because Taylor is one of the youngest coaches in the NBA. And he also had a chance to learn from some great coaches, um, you know, in particular, Greg Popovich and the San Antonio yeah. Spurs. And I just loved talking to Taylor about how he built the culture in Memphis. And this was, I talked to him before the season started. So there were some big expectations. I don't think anybody was really pegging them as one of the top challengers in the Western conference. And he talked a lot about just making people the priority and, you know, I think that this is a key piece that I saw in all the good teams that I was a part of. It was like, they all had the ability to forego individual success uh, for, for, to prioritize the team success. And you see that in any championship team. It's not so much about individual accomplishments or individual players. It's about the, how they play as a group and being them, being there for the team as a group, right? And, you know, he talked a lot about going through COVID together and, and just mm-hmm. the challenges of the last couple of years. So uh, those were the two guests that really stand out. And, and obviously, I was really proud and excited to interview them uh, on my podcast. Mm-hmm. You, uh, when you talked about Taylor there, you said, you said the culture word, um, bring that back to, to your book. Um, when, when coaches build culture and we're trying to build culture, we don't build them on tangibles, do we? I mean, I've never walked into a gym and seen on the wall, six foot, 185, you know, must have wingspan must, you don't, but you see intangible values. You see intangible principles that we strive for, just like you said, that are targeted at our heart, at our mind, at our team. Um, can you talk about how when coaches invest time into figuring out what their true intangible values are, they want to be around, how that can help shape their culture? Well, I love that you brought this up and that you explained it like you just did. Because <laughs> when I wrote the book, I wanted to write a book on building a championship culture, but I didn't want to use the word culture. I think especially in society now, anytime we use the word vision or culture, it's almost been overused and it loses a lot of its meaning. So I didn't want to write a book with culture in the title or about culture to, so so to speak, but you're a hundred percent correct. Like when we talk about the type of team that we want to be, we never talk about, you know, oh, well, we want to have like the tallest, uh, you know, players here. We want to have the best looking team. Nobody ever talks about that. They always talk about being the hardest working team or the mm-hmm. toughest team mentally or the team that comes to be- t- comes together 
the best. And so I, I think like by reverse engineering the type of team that you want to be, you can then in turn get the culture that you're striving for. And this is where a lot of teams go wrong. You know, we talked about the NFL draft and a lot of teams look at the NFL draft and they're thinking, okay, this is our chance to get an impact player. This is a chance for us to get, to like solidify our defensive line, our offensive line or whatever. And like, they look at it the wrong way. Like, yes, if you're picking at the top of the draft, you do want to get an impact player. There's no question. But everybody, if you're picking in the top 20 picks, really there's 15 or so players that really are kind of the same when we're talking about talent, right? Um, And so, like, if we're talking about really kind of the same type of player, the same type of impact, what is going to be the separator? Well, a lot of teams don't even consider that. They just say, well, this guy can get to the quarterback. And they never actually say, like, okay, well, both of these guys can get to the quarterback, but, you know, this person really represents the type of team that we want to be. Um, Antonio Brown for all the football fans out there, like we all know Antonio Brown for the last five or six years has probably been the best wide receiver on the planet. And like, yeah, we definitely want to have that type of production or that type of talent on our team, but at what cost Mm -hmm. there's very few teams and specifically players that can probably rein in an Antonio Brown. Um, you know, the book has not been written. The story has not been written, but in 20 years, somebody's going to do a 30, 30 on Antonio Brown's time with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And we're going to have a whole new respect for Mike Tomlin and probably what he put up with during his time there. And I think that, you know, you can't just take an Antonio Brown and plug him into the Detroit lions. And now all of a sudden they're a productive offense or a winning team. Uh, You have to have a very strong foundation, a very strong locker room that can handle a personality like that. And quite honestly, there's probably only three or four teams in the league that could even handle him, let alone want to put up with him because at what cost you bring somebody like, like that that's willing to strip their clothes off and leave your team <laughs> mid-game, which we've never seen ever in the history of the game uh, in professional sports, really. It's like, at what cost does yeah. that get you? You can say, oh, well, they won a championship with him. Well, like, he wasn't the focal point of that team. Like, he was there. He, he, he served a role, and he right. only served a role because the greatest quarterback of all time was literally sitting next to him and taking him to practice every day and telling him what to do. And I think so, that that's what it kind of makes me think of, too, is I look at the teams where there was success. I mean, Ben Roethlisberger, Hall of Fame quarterback. Tom Brady, Hall of Fame quarterback. You had Hall of Fame leadership in that huddle, um, I, I think, which – you know, to your point on, on, you know, how do you, how do you contain those things? Um, I, I look at like, wow, how did, how did they? But again, if on the exit, if you can't, if Tom Brady, one of the all time greatest players ever <laughs> with his success is kind of like, I don't know how I can help you anymore, man. Um, it, it, it's, you know, eventually Tom recognized I can, I can go on and play and win without you too. Exactly. And I, and I, you know, you were asking about the culture and I think like the important thing is, is you have to understand what it is you want out of your people. You know, I I work with a lot of corporate companies and I was giving a talk on my book here uh, in the last couple of weeks. 
And one of the people reached out to me afterwards and they were kind of talking about, well, you know, we've been hiring and we haven't been having as much success in our hiring. And I think it's because like we have a certain attitude we want in our people, but we've been hiring because of whatever they know Salesforce or they know a certain, you know, they have a certain skill. And that's, that's understandable. And like, if somebody doesn't know Salesforce, like you might have to teach them, you know, you might have to spend a week like teaching them what to do, but, but like everybody has spent the last 20 years literally buried in a computer, like somebody knowing a certain program versus not knowing a certain, like, I don't think that that should be a priority in your hiring. What should be a priority in your hiring is saying like, you know what, we want people that are like down for the hard work that are like yeah. going to be here every day and be a positive influence on the people around them. Cause like a lot of times when teams miss on players, they don't miss on the talent evaluation. They miss on the human evaluation. Mm. You mentioned True. it earlier. The person is usually what dictates somebody's success or failure. Um, you know, we could sit here and talk all day. Like how does somebody like Kurt Warner become a hall of fame player? Uh, but yet like nobody seemed to see it. Well, because they weren't, they weren't evaluating the type of person he was. There's a lot that goes into that. Yeah, he had to be on a certain team. Like their franchise quarterback had to get hurt. All these things. But the bottom line was he had to do the work to put himself in that position. And like once he got his opportunity, it, 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 was, it was off. It was off and running. And so, uh, you know, it's like that with a lot of great players. I think Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady here, we're talking about three of the best quarterbacks the last 25 years um, and nobody really saw it coming with any of these guys. So there's this other element that really dictates uh, how championship teams win and what drives elite performers. And, and like you said, it's not being 6'6 or, or having certain measurables. It, it always comes down to the immeasurables and the intangibles. I think another, as I listen to you talk, another one of the things that kind of makes me think of as, you know, athletes and in the status we are of mental health and awareness is – when we kind of know those values and intangibles, they give us a bit healthier metrics for ourselves to look at ourselves um, versus some of the the tangible ones that I can't control that I'm 5'10". I can't control, you know, this, I got this many fast twitch muscles I was born with, right? And, and so I think, you know, as individuals and as athletes, when we kind of, hey, what are the intangibles that really I bring value? Um, and we can measure ourselves up against those. I think it leads just to like you said, you know, the mindset progress, the growth. Um, but too often we attach our measurement or metrics or self-worth to these tangible ideals or results that really aren't going to serve us well in getting us to where we want to go. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to kind of reverse engineer what it is you're truly looking for. I think, I don't know if this is a great analogy, but I think a lot of times in dating, um, you know, there's, there's often a misalignment of what somebody might be looking for and then what they're actually, you know, going out and trying to find. Sure. Um, and, you know, like the most obvious uh, correlation is, oh, you know, I'm, I'm looking for somebody who's gorgeous or, you know, who, who has like the Instagram bod. But yet, like, if you're thinking about settling down with somebody, okay, that's great. That's, that's fine. That can be part of your criteria. But like, like, what are you looking for? Are you looking for somebody who can be a great spouse, a great uh, mother or father? Uh, and, and I think that sometimes gets clouded by, you know, especially in our society today, it's all about the look, it's all about the results. 
uh, without recognizing that a lot of times the great teams, the great players, they have all these other elements that really lie directly below the surface. We just see the talent. We just see Tom Brady walking arm in arm with Giselle at the, on the red carpet. And we're not like, oh, well, you know, he had to beat out Drew Henson, uh, you know, in college to, to like claim his starting spot. He had to beat out Drew Bledsoe at the yeah. time, the highest paid player in the history of the league, you know, to get that starting spot in New England. So there's all these elements that I think really kind of speak to what is within a person that kind of also helps dictate who they are as a player. And that's why you can't just look at somebody, you know, somebody's looks or, or their, or their talent, so to speak, and feel like you have a complete evaluation of them. You really have to reverse engineer the traits that truly make people successful. Yeah. Love it, Evan. Last question as we wrap up, um, if you could wave a magic wand and every student athlete athlete wakes up tomorrow inherently empowered with an intangible skill what's the skill they're waking up with tomorrow great question i i think for me it's growth mindset hmm. so uh when i started kind of uh, i read a book mindset by carol dweck and uh it's a great book on growth mindset and and again what leads to success what are yeah. the true dictators of, of successful people and as I was reading that book in 2014, 2015, my first thought was, I wish I had read this book when I was a first year coach. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was incredibly impactful and talked a lot about, you know, the relationship people have with praise, the relationship they have with understanding what leads to success. Uh, so all of the things that come with growth mindset from, you know, reacting to failures and successes the same way to the work ethic that it takes to be successful, uh, I think is the, the one trait, the one intangible that I would give all of the young student athletes because that will end up dictating a majority of their success. It's not so much their talent. Yes, that might determine whether you become a division three football player or a division one volleyball player or whatever. Um, but once you get there, are you done uh, or is the work just getting started? And, and oftentimes the people with the growth mindset, they understand that the work hasn't even begun yet. That just got them to that next precipice. And so it's on them to kind of like re-engage, re-attack uh, uh, achieving their next goal and their next vision. And, and that's just going to take consistency and constant improvement. So growth mindset is the one intangible I would wave my wand uh, and give all student athletes. Thank you for listening. If something caught your ear as useful or unique this episode, we would love your help spreading the Elevate message. You can find me on Instagram at Elevate Educate Rejuvenate. That's with the numeral instead of the A-T-E. Thank you again, and if I can help you with anything, please reach out. And don't forget, go elevate others.